let's take a little look behind the page now at the Marvel Rebellion of 1991. This is a huge moment in the history of Marvel Comics um, that led to the creation of Image Comics, led to the creation of Spawn, changed the comic book industry forever, and eventually led to things like Invincible and The Walking Dead, as you talked about. Mm. The story centers around seven of the biggest artists in the world in the 90s. Eric Larson, who made his name drawing Spider-Man. Jim Valentino, who made his name on the um, Smash It Guardians of the Galaxy series. Rob Liefeld, who made his name on New Mutants and and X-Force, created Cable and Deadpool, co-created them. Todd McFarlane, who um, made his name for Marvel on The Incredible Hulk and then Spider-Man. Will Spotasio, who made his name on The Punisher, X-Factor, and was doing Uncanny X-Men. Mark Silvestri, um, who was doing Uncanny Mm. X-Men and Wolverine. And Jim Lee, who was a massive name um, and drew X-Men. Awful lot of X-Men guys. Yeah. By the early 90s, Marvel is dominating comic book sales. Absolutely dominating uh, DC is not getting a look in um, Today Whilst a single issue was lucky to sell eighty to 90,000 copies Back then Marvel was consistently selling Multiple hundreds of thousands Per issue Ooh. And these artists were behind the biggest Selling titles With, with writers of course But McFarlane's um, Spider-Man issue 1 Sold 2.5 million copies um mcfarlane wow. was such like a big deal that marvel created a second spider-man title just <laughs> for him to write and, and work on uh rob leefield's x-force issue one sold five million copies beating mcfarlane becoming the new record holder and then jim lee's x-men issue one smashed that record and sold over eight million copies to this day, the biggest selling comic book of all time. The art was a huge factor in, in, in driving these sales. The incredible front covers being created by these artists mm. were really driving sales up. Marvel experimented so much with... Like, this is how we know these front covers was with, with a thing. Marvel started to experiment with different types of front covers. Um, the, to begin with... They experimented with getting these superstar artists to draw more than one front cover. They were called okay. variant covers. I've seen these in the digital re- redos, I think. They right. At the back, yeah. So um, the comic book would come out and it would have two front covers. Mm. So comic book fans would now buy two copies of the same comic, <laughs> doubling Marvel's sales <laughs> so they could get the two different front covers. Yeah. X-Men. Issue one, the one that sold over 8 million copies Part of that is because It had four different Front covers by Jim Lee (laughs) So it was Quadrupling Some of the regular sales it would make That is an indicator That is a strong indicator Of yes, the writers Are deeply important to Marvel The stories and all of that right? And on the artists are involved in the stories But that is an indicator of how at this period of time, late 80s, early 90s, it is all about this dynamic, bombastic, ultra-macho art style that these seven guys are, are, are bringing in and, 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 and really spearheading. Because 
when you buy three or four copies of the same comic, the story inside is the same. The only hmm. reason you're you're spending three or four times as much money is because it's the artwork, the artwork, the artwork that these people want, these front covers. Now, admittedly, there is this thing of... There's a speculator market that creeps up in the late 80s, right? Mm. Um, trading, baseball, sports trading cards, baseball cards and things like that had had a massive moment in the 80s of being the new thing that collectors buy, yeah. speculating that they're going to shoot up in value and become very, very worthwhile. The next thing that this speculator market moved on to was comic books. And they thought that if they bought the right copy then in 30 years' time, 20 years' time, it would be worth lots of lots of money, like the first issue of Action Comics with Superman is. Mm. A stupid thing to think when they're producing <laughs> millions of them. But, yeah. but it, was, it, was, it was introducing high, high amounts of sales into the, into the, uh, the industry. So in 1991, of the top 50 best-selling comics in America... Top fifty five zero. Thirty nine of them were from these seven artists. That's wow. how much they were dominating. If Marvel had a stranglehold on comic book sales, these guys had a stranglehold on Marvel. They were Marvel's biggest hitters. So much of Marvel's eighties, late eighties, early nineties success was because of these seven guys. Topic Farlin. Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld were the top, top superstars of the industry. Um, they started to break out into other kind of roles. Rob Liefeld, in 1990, partners mm. up with Spike Lee to make a commercial for Levi Jeans. Ooh. Levi Jeans. That's a, yeah. that's a weird tangent. Spike Lee was making commercials, and yeah. it was like they picked out, in the way that they might have picked out a, a sports star, this approach was to bring out really, it was to new, young, cool, hip people of the 90s. And, you know, Rob Liefeld's X-Force was such a hit that Spike Lee and the Levi team went, this is a, this is a, this is a star, a breakout star we want to focus on. Um, and these guys are freelancers as well. Mm. They, they're, they're responsible for all of Marvel's hits, but they're not employees. They are work for hire. Which right. is a bizarre thing to have... So much of your business relying on a freelancer is weird. Mm. Um, so I don't have exact figures. I don't know if exact figures are ever out there. Right. These artists will get paid a fee per page of artwork that they do. A flat fee. Let's right. negotiate ahead of time. And then if their comic they're working on sells more than a certain amount of copies, then any any sales above that level they'll get paid either a small bonus, sorry, a bonus, which I'm sure is good, or a small, small, small percentage of the extra sales, a royalty. Okay. But nothing like what Marvel is actually making in profit. Hmm. If they create, if these freelancers create, working on the work for hire, if they create huge genre-shifting characters like Rob Liefeld did with Cable, and Deadpool, back-to-back, they don't own those characters. Marvel does. They have no say over how these characters are used, and Marvel takes all the money when they become... when they use them in other comics, when they make them into toys, merchandise, 
action mm. figures, video games, they might pay a, a, a small royalty fee to the artist when the character is used, maybe, but it's nothing compared to what what actual profit is being raked in by the company. Siegel and Schuster, the mm. creators of Superman, died in poverty. Oof. Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman, died in poverty. Comic book history is littered with stories of writers and artists who create something incredible. Something that changes the industry, that that connects with generations of fans over multiple decades, but only get a tiny, tiny fraction of what it's worth as the company takes all the profit. Stan Lee has had to sue Marvel multiple times to try and get some fraction of compensation of what he might be worth um, as the guy that created these characters. You know, Stan Lee doesn't own Marvel and never has done. And I'm sure he was well paid compared to some other jobs, but compared to the billions that the company will make off the of the creative of the uh, of the creation, the the artist doesn't get very much at all. December 1990. Well, in in 1991, Rob Liefeld has this idea. He's had a lot of clashes with Marvel um, editors and higher ups, mm. um, pushing back on. He, he's late with his issues. These artists are all a bit late. They're all a bit lackadaisical. But they're also pushing back over the things that Rob... Rob wants to move X-Force and stuff like that in a more mature and edgy direction. A lot of pushback, a lot of editorial um, interference, a lot of clashes with the writers that he's working with. And so in 1991, Leefield has the initial nugget of an idea. He wants the next thing that he does to not be for Marvel Comics, but to be something that... He publishes himself and is creator owned, which is the term used in comics. So mm. it's a character he owns, and 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 he all the costs are his, but also all the profit will be his as well. Um, instead of creating characters like Cable and Deadpool, he creates something that he can own. Um, and then in in December of that year, nineteen ninety one, there's a comic book convention, and a lot of these artists are there. Mm. Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld, Jim Valentino, they're having dinner at this convention, with the editor-in-chief of Malibu Comics, who's a guy called Dave Albridge. Dave Albridge, uh, Malibu Comics is a small but established publishing company that is making comic books, some superhero, sci-fi, fantasy-based ones, very small, but they have an infrastructure. Mm. They... They can get the raw materials in. They have printing presses. They, you know what I mean. They, they know they can get out to distributors. You have to have an infrastructure yeah. to do anything. You can't just like print them, print a comic at home, and take it into a comic book shop. That's not how it goes. Malibu is sympathetic to these these creator ownership kind of sensibilities. And when Rob Liefeld expresses an interest in doing something creator owned and Mal- Malibu publishing it for him, and there being a deal in place, Albrich is. Very interested in that, and extends the same offer to Eric Larson and Jim Valentino. And it's like that, yeah, it could be some fun things for you guys to do outside of Marvel. You're all freelancers, so you can do what you want. Todd McFarlane hears this, and he seizes on this concept. And him and Rob get together, and McFarlane is the guy that kind of makes what happens next happen. McFarlane as we'll come to see, is a brilliant businessman. And he might not have known it at the time, but he is. Todd McFarlane essentially rallies the troops. Mm. 
and he pitches this idea to these other artists. The idea of forming their own company and going head-to-head with Marvel. (laughs) And Todd manages to recruit Eric Larson, who's working on Amazing Spider-Man, Jim Valentino, who's on Guardians of the Galaxy, Mark Silvestri from Wolverine, Jim Lee from the X-Men, and and Jim brings on board Will Spaticio from Uncanny X-Men. The top comics being made by Marvel. Now, all their artists are involved in a little conspiracy, Mm. in a little rebellion. (laughs) McFarlane's spoken about, and some of this, some of these guys he got the day before they do what they're about to do next, which is the big moment. Like, it wasn't this... It just naturally all fell together. All these guys were having problems with creative uh, input from editors and writers, and all of them were having problems with what they were being paid. And McFarlane says getting Jim Lee on board was a crucial, crucial moment to this rebellion. Because Jim Lee... Look, Rob Leefield and Tom McFarlane... They were the bad boys of Marvel. Marvel was up to their eyes in problems and conflicts and issues Mm. with these guys. Um, We talked about McFarlane's Spider-Man and how he was introducing like child molesters and serial killers into a (laughs) Spider-Man story and there was graphic violence and Marvel having to push back and all of this. Mm. Like, Lee Field was the same. There's all this... They've always been battling with Marvel. Jim Lee is the golden boy. He is beloved, he's the quiet, nice guy, he delivers his art on time, and he's just the good guy. Mm. And once they get Jim Lee into this rebellion, they knew he's the key. Like, Ooh. all the others know, this is very, very serious as well. Jim Lee just sold 8 million freaking copies of X-Men, and he's now <laughs> saying, I'm going to rebel as well. Like, Ooh. that's a massive moment for this rebellion. And so, late December 1991, these boys march into Marvel's headquarters and have a sit-down with Marvel President Terry Stewart and Editor-in-Chief Tom DeFalco, (laughs) and they tell the company, we are all quitting today. Wow. They tell Marvel their business practices suck. They are treating, the way they're treating and compensating the talent is crap. And so all of your top stars are walking out the door right now. And FYI, this is not a negotiating position. We're just going. All of Marvel heavy hitters, remember that number, 39 out of the top 50. What's 50 minus 39, Will? That's what they're losing. They're losing 39 of of, of their massive, massive sales, right? Yeah. And... Without them, Marvel has only a fraction of the best-selling comics it used to have, which means now DC will be overtaking them in the best-seller list. The best artists in the industry are leaving the top titles. Amazing Spider-Man, artist gone. X-Men, artist gone. Uncanny X-Men, Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Force, X-Factor, Wolverine, gone. Marvel panics, as you can well imagine. (laughs) <laughs> and they scramble to desperately retain the seven. Um, and, and they're trying to address the group's frustrations over the editorial control and the creative kind of side of it and getting the way their stories. And um, as the story goes, Terry Stewart and Tom DeFalco make an offer 
um, to give them creative control over a Marvel project that was called New Universe. It was something Marvel tried in the 80s, which was a completely separate continuity and timeline um, to the Marvel Universe. It was a regular, like, non-superhuman-powered world. Mm. And then there would be a bunch of stories that would introduce a a, a sci-fi event or a sci-fi character for the first time into a regular world. It was Mm. called New Universe. It didn't pan out. It didn't work. But in this scrambling, they say, we'll relaunch New Universe and you guys can be in control of it and you can do what you want. It'll be outside of Marvel. You'll have final say. No dice. Because it's not about... It's about more than just creative control. Mm. It's about ownership and it is about money. Mm. Jim Lee's artwork, his redesign of the of the X-Men... Is, is lifted wholesale from his pages and used as the basis for the hugely successful X-Men animated series. Ah, okay. When you look at the 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 X-Men in that cartoon, you're looking mm. at Jim Lee's X-Men. Right, okay, okay. It's his redesign of all those characters. Mm. And the litany of toys, the action figures that come from that, are made from his design. And the merchandise, therefore, is from his design. The video goes from his design. And he sees zero compensation and zero royalty share for that. Was it all part of the, the contract he signed at the beginning of his career? Sure. Yeah, of course. Is that is it fair that Marvel and Fox can profit off that person's work to such a degree without him being involved or compensated? No. That's no, not fair. Is it the reality of comic books? Yeah. Yeah. But that's about to effing change. Why work <laughs> so hard at creating new characters when it's the company that you work for that will take, I mean, all the profit? To call it the lion's share of the profit is a joke. It's virtually mm. all the profit. Yeah. If you have a great new idea for a character... And you create it and launch it, and it becomes mega popular. Marvel spin it off into cartoons and movies and action figures. You only get a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of what that company makes. So why give your idea to Marvel? Why give it to Marvel? Todd McFarlane, he rallies them with this with this mantra, and they're on board, and they walk out the door, and they leave. They're freelancers. They work for hire. Marvel are now panic mode Mm. and the next day mcfarlane calls up dc comics and makes another interview and dc are rubbing their hands together because what the dc comics think they think we're just getting the marvel rebellion is these guys want to come over here maybe for more money whatever (laughs) but we're gonna gut marvel McFarlane takes this meeting, walks in, and says, "This is we've just walked out on Marvel, and we're just letting you know we're not coming to you. Mm. We're leaving. We're starting our own thing, and we're coming for both of you." Ooh, damn! And and this is uh, there's also a nice story of Tom McFarlane also wanted to recruit Jack Kirby to the team. What? Because Kirby wasn't working for anyone. They wanted to bring him in as sort of like a, a figurehead. Wow. Um, and McFarlane's pitch was that since all Marvel comics at the time have this thing of Stan Lee presents the X-Men, Stan Lee presents the Avengers, they wanted to be able to stick it to Marvel by bringing Jack <laughs> on board and having all the image com- comics carry the banner, Jack Kirby presents Spawn. But that, that didn't work out, but there we go. That's a shame. Um, when the story gets out of what's happened, Marvel's stock 
takes a dive. In in the business world, when a company loses like its talent, its top executive, let's say, it's called a brain drain. And that's mm. how it's reported on news channels. It often means the best and brightest um, of a company are going elsewhere. And that often leads to the company's stock plummeting. Well, that's what happened to Marvel. Once the story got out, investors panicked and dumped their Marvel stock. And if you look at the numbers, I would as well. 39 out of your top 50 best-selling titles, the guys responsible are going. I, I want out. I want to put my money somewhere else. So, how, like, how do you... What, what are your thoughts on this now, immediately, Will? It's insane. It's absolutely insane. I mean, it's a massive massive move and you think ah this won't work out but I mean it's like even the rebellion won't work out but then they get like these big people who've done some of the most amazing stuff and it's just like yeah we're not we're not only we we not jumping ship to DC we're actually just doing our own thing we're, we're carving our, our own slice in the big pie in the comic book industry of the early 90s absolutely it's the perfect time to do it I mean looking perfect back time. uh Rob Leefield said that there was no other time we didn't know that the boom was going to end in however many years mm. but when when you're the most when you're the top of something that's the time to make the move yeah to, whatever that might be it's a time to it's a, it's a time you're worth the most to other people exactly so the artists formed image comics which is a publishing group that would would house all of their creator owned comic books so each creator would have their own comic book studio within mm. the umbrella of, of Image Comics, and they were all responsible for their own business individually. Right. So if you're Jim Lee, you've now got to hire your own inkers, your mm. own, if you want a writer, your own colorists. Um, you've got to have an editor. You've got to get hit. You've got to hire an editor. You've got Sound- So all the costs are yours. It sounds very libertarian, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I don't know. No. No, okay, because they still use running water and electricity, and uh, they cross the street that someone else built, and you know. <laughs> so the first okay. rule of Image Comics, they kind of only had two yeah. rules to begin with. It, rule one: Image Comics, the company, the LLC, owns nothing. It owns nothing but the name Image Comics and the logo that Rob Leefield drew. The second rule is that no partner would interfere with another partner's comic book or business that's it so whatever you make at image comics is yours it cannot in the Mm. rules of the company the company can have no claim to what you do april 16th 1992 rob leefield's young blood issue one hits newsstands being published by malibu comics using their infrastructure but it's image comics first get out the door 1.5 1.5 million copies. Wow. Never before in the history of the comic book industry has anyone other than Marvel and DC done this. It, it, was, inc- it was huge news when Marvel did it. But now it's been done by a brand new outfit that is that you know there's no spider-man there's no x-men there's no avengers in that in that comic that's original characters rob leefield dreamed up created published june 4th the same year spawn issue one two million copies the best-selling indie comic of all time to this day no one is ever touching that number ever 
And then the rest, Jim Lee came out with Wildcat, Eric Larson came out with Savage Dragon, mm. um, Valentino came out with Shadowhawk, and the rest of the, those issue ones didn't sell the same, but they each sold over 500,000 copies of the first issue. It was incredible. And instead of being paid a fee per page and a percentage, mm. the artists now keep all those profits. Amazing, because they're their characters and it's their company. Um, Rob Leefield's on 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 late night talk shows and he's on Good Morning America promoting the company. He's the only one that kind of liked the attention like that. Yeah. Um, superheroes, superhero comics, thanks to a lot of thanks to the massive sales, thanks to the speculator market, thanks to the death of Superman being a massive newsworthy story. Because that mm. character never died before, so news covered that massive story. But superhuman comics, superhero comics, are at the the apex of pop culture, and image comics are the talking point for like two years. Within four months of image comics being being created, they have overtaken DC comics in sales. Image Comics, <laughs> four months after starting, they're the number two comic book company in America. Amazing. Um, and it only lasts for a few months, but still, their sales were incredible. No other publisher has ever, ever done what Image did and made themselves a massive top company like that. Um, and you have to think about how that affects Marvel. Oh, yeah. Because you're talking about the industry essentially going from being a two-horse race, which it's been since probably the 60s when Marvel came around. Mm. Now it's it's a three-horse race. And Image are gobbling up market share. And that directly hurts Marvel sales. Mm. 1994, Jim Lee's Wildcats becomes an animated cartoon series with its own toy line. Jim Lee finally gets what he's, you know, what what he was not a part of with the X-Men cartoon series. 1995, Savage Dragon becomes animated series with a toy line. Uh, 95, also The Max uh, becomes an MTV animated series. Smaller scale, but still. 1997, we get both the Spawn movie toy line, but also the HBO adult Spawn animated series coming mm. out. Um, completely different vibe and tone, but a big, big, big year for Image. The success of Image Comics has a huge culture-shifting effect on the comic book industry. It proved that when an artist stops working on you know, the Spider-Man characters and wants to do something of his own, creator-owned comics and characters could be more than just little niche things that only a small handful of people would buy. Image proved that writers and artists could break away from Marvel and DC and publish big, profitable comics of their own, change their own destiny. Maybe not to the extent that the founders ever did, but still. Before long, other creators were flocking to Image to use it as a safe haven, a publisher for their own comics, their own ideas. Some guys that had self-published for years and years and years, like Jeff Smith with his Bone series, came to Image and said, I want to be part of this infrastructure. I've been doing this on my own. Can I have, you know, we bring it here. I've already got a track record. I just need help with the publishing. Done. And other artists followed in, in the Image founders' footsteps and set up their own little publishing houses with, like, Dark Horse and other publishers and things. McFarlane's Spawn is easily the most successful of the Image um, comics characters. The movie, the HBO series, six video games... 
Ooh, okay. It, it had a video game uh, in 95, yeah. um, another one in 92 in 97, one in 1999, mm. and then the Spawn character turns up in a variety of different fighting games as a new character and stuff. Yeah, I saw uh, the the recent Mortal Kombat games. They got like Spawn, the Xenomorph from Alien, Rambo, Terminator, Robocop. Think Mad. about what that says. It, it says, says he's Spawn he's, is yeah. at a level with those iconic yeah. movies characters, right? Yeah. Mad. Um, McFarlane, in 1994, McFarlane um, is working with Mattel Toys to produce action figures. And he hates it because they're not doing what he wants them to do. He's not satisfied with the models they bring him. Yeah. So he takes the toy rights back and Todd McFarlane starts his own toy company. Ooh. In three months, they've sold 2.2 million action figures nationwide. Bloody hell. McFarlane Toys immediately becomes renowned for producing high-quality, highly detailed action figures, unlike anything else in the more kidified toy companies. Um so it's what your more discerned, like teens to young adults to adult collectors want. Um, mm. The 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 first, so they they pretty quickly off the off the bat, um, with, with the success of Spawn figures, get the rights to make Simpsons toys. Ah, oh, okay, that's, action that's figures for about. an older audience. They yeah. then start making detailed action figures for rock legends. They have a Kiss line. They have a Beatles line. Um, and they do all the different outfits, the iconic outfits and face paints and costumes. You can get the Sgt. Pepper Beatles, and you can get the 60s Beatles, and you can get the uh, on top of the roof at the very end Beatles, right? They sign deals with um, sporting to do action figures based on sporting legends from the NFL, the NBA, the NBL. And they begin making classic uh, horror movie characters. I, I collected um, the classic horror movie characters um, from McFarlane Toys. Um, Ghostface and Michael Myers yeah. and, and all of those and Freddy. Um, I just, uh, just did a Google search and this is all the stuff you see when you go into... Uh, yeah, planet. they're massive. They're huge. And you go to Forbidden Planet, it's just, yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. And anywhere that does that kind of thing, you would have those kind of toys. Todd McFarlane parlayed... Image Comics and Spawn into creating a multi-million dollar media empire. His toy company now makes D the DC comic action figures. Right? Mm. Um, he has a production company that made music videos for Pearl Jam, Ozzy Osbourne, Disturbed. Do you remember Freak on a Leash by Korn? That's he, like his production company made that music video. Oh, no way. Oh, That's is a that massive, what, yeah. Wait, is that, the, is, is that the same animation style as the Spawn HBO Series. Similar, yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I recognise the animation style from. Yeah, Todd McFarlane is personally worth several hundreds of millions of dollars. Something that no other Marvel artist, no other superhero artist can claim. He ran with this, this little idea that Rob Liefeld had. He took it and ran with it. And what right. happened in Image Comics' wake to Marvel? That's the key. That's the important thing we're talking about. Image took a huge chunk out of Marvel's profits, and that and and its and its uh, stock plummeted after the brain drain, and it caused it's really bad news for Marvel. So Marvel in the, in the late eighties have been bought up by New World Entertainment, and as we've discussed before, New World Entertainment is owned by an investment banker called Ron Perlman, not that one, <laughs> Ronald Perlman. <laughs> His approach to Marvel was expand, expand, expand. Mm. And 
some investment bankers, I'm not saying Ron Perlman had this track record, because I don't know if this is a litigious thing that could come back and haunt me. But some investment <laughs> bankers have this history of buying up a whole bunch of companies, right? Mm. And using whatever debt is piled onto a company doesn't matter because you just filed Chapter 11 at the end. Mm. And the meanwhile, you try and expand and expand and expand. And the profit... So companies need other companies to get stuff done. Yeah. You can buy a company uh, and make your other companies the exclusive clients and customers of that company and you can mm. pump profit out of one company into others debt racks up in one company and you can close that company down <sighs> i don't know if ron perlman has a track record of that because i don't know enough about it and i'm not pump saying and dump i am not saying he does i don't think so that's to do with stock oh, um, to do with stock okay but perlman's approach was was having marvel publish way too many comics <laughs> and he also had marvel buy up the trading card companies and the sticker companies that used to make Marvel trading cards and stickers. So Marvel mm. now owned a trading card company and a sticker company that it probably couldn't afford. In 1995, Marvel reports its first annual loss, um, mm. which is attributed mainly to the company's massive size and a and a, the market is shrinking because the speculators have realized these comics are never going to be worth anything. Oh no, what have we done? And they're leaving, they're, they're not buying things in pallets and crates anymore. They're going. So the market, the superhero market is shrinking. 1996, Marvel lay off 275 employees. Ooh. On, on, in one day. And then in 1996, Marvel are in trouble. Mm. The comic book industry is crashing. And they no longer have the market share they used to have because now it's a three-horse race. Comic book shops are dying out of business left, right, and centre. And the, the that spark and that energy that Marvel had in the late 80s, early 90s, that was snuffed out with the rebellion of 1991. So in 1996, Marvel Comics go groveling back to the image founders. Ask them to come back to Marvel as part of a huge deal where they would hand over their most iconic characters to to Image for Image to reboot. The pitch was, we've got Iron Man, Cap, Hulk, Avengers, Fantastic Four, all of the comic, all of their sales are failing, and they desperately need some reinvigoration. We want all the Image founders to take the characters, reboot them. You can't get a more definitive, clear sign of victory than that. <laughs> that is the white flag being waved. Hmm. But after hearing the pitch, the only people interested... I mean, Todd McFarlane's so busy with this <laughs> empire and left, right... The others, the others are busy left, right, and centre. Jim Lee and Rob Leefield are the only ones that are interested in the deal. And it becomes known as Heroes Reborn. The end of the Onslaught saga... Iron Man, Cap, Hulk, Avengers, Fantastic Four all die. They're killed off in the regular Marvel Universe. And Jim and Rob start a brand new universe with rebooted versions of these classic characters. And it's essentially Image does the Marvel Universe. Mm. It's not very well thought of. It was universally panned by critics. But the sales <laughs> were big. Um, and then December 27th, 1996 the Marvel group of companies files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
The company won't be saved from bankruptcy until June of 1998 when it is merged with another uh, big company, Toy Biz, the toy company. During his time in charge of Marvel, Ron Perlman is accused of diverting over $500 million out of Marvel and into his other companies. A lawsuit is is brought against Ron Perlman for these practices, which he settles out of court. So we don't know the details, but he... Oh no, he didn't settle out of court because we do know we know that he paid eighty million dollars in two thousand and eight um, to settle that lawsuit. The man Ooh. that bankrupted Marvel. Thanks for joining us as we revisit some of our favourite moments from Marvel versus Marvel. Don't forget our full-length episodes are jam-packed with hours of Marvel trivia, behind the page, behind the scenes, and comic book Marvel history.